You're listening to Camayo's Compliance Talk by our in-house compliance expert, Michelle Camayo. Join Michelle on the latest developments, questions, and conversations surrounding employee benefit issues organizations are navigating today. I'm Michelle Camayo. I'm the compliance leader here at Bolton. I'm working with employers on a daily basis, and we're having these practical discussions where I'm not giving legal advice. Uh, so I want to make that clear before we start today. And also, please be diligent with regards to updates on information that we discuss during these monthly calls. There are a, a lot of moving pieces, especially right now because the end of the public health emergency and the national emergency is upon us, or it's coming very soon. So it is important to look out for agency facts and guidance and, and updates. The objective for today is that I have this goal to help employers address and solve compliance concerns and issues. So Ask Michelle was created to answer questions most meaningful to our audience members, which is you listening on the line. So we've got this 30-minute format where I'm going to go over some compliance chatter that I'm hearing out there. And you can always submit questions in advance. If you want to hear your question answered on air, you can send me that question via email at askmichelle@boltonco.com, and I will add it to the presentation. And new episodes are available on Apple Podcasts Tuesday after our monthly call. So I've said all that and we'll go right into the compliance chatter. So what I've been hearing, it, it's kind of been an exciting morning for me and, and us in the group benefits world that pays attention to uh, legislation. And the reason why is because just out of nowhere, seemingly out of nowhere, it wasn't, but seemingly out of nowhere, there is a joint resolution that was passed by the House and the Senate, and it's on its way to the president to end the national emergency immediately. Notice how national is emphasized, the national emergency. There is one particular group health plan item that's tied to the national emergency, and that is the joint notice extended deadlines for COBRA and other group health provisions but it's the joint notice extended deadlines. That's generally how we refer to it. So that's the only one that is tied to the national emergency that really affects our group health plans. But it is, it was very surprising that the president isn't going to veto it. He said, you know, I'm not vetoing it. I'll, fine, I'll let it happen. If you remember the end of the public health emergency and the national emergency, was anticipated to align to be May 11th. And it looks like what happened and what we're all reading is it, it's really a political play. But what happened is it, it seemed like the Republicans were in a hurry to get this national emergency done and over with. So, um, you know, they introduced joint resolution HJ7. When the president announced he didn't plan to veto it, uh, more Democrats got on board and they were able to pass it in the House and the Senate. Now, it hasn't been signed into a law yet, but it is fully expected to be signed by the president 
where it would be effective immediately for the national emergency to end. So you will hear more about that in the coming days. And of course, here at Bolton Compliance, we will post a blog and a compliance alert for those of you signed up for our email. Also, agency FAQs were released yesterday with regards to guidance when it comes to the group health plan impact and the end of the public health emergency. The public health emergency is still anticipated to end on May 11th. It's the national emergency that the president is expected to sign into uh, or to end officially today. But the public health emergency is still anticipated to end May 11th. Also, what I've been hearing a lot of, and it's very, very timely, which is why we were hearing more and more of it, Medicaid, which is Medi-Cal here in California. So if you're in California, you know it is Medi-Cal. It's the state-run Medicaid program that's sponsored by federal dollars. Medi-Cal and Medicaid is starting eligibility reviews again uh, April 1st. So that is that is a lot of your employees or some of your employees have probably already received a letter from Medi-Cal you know, saying that, hey, continuous coverage has, has, is over. We've determined that you're no longer eligible or we've determined that you're still eligible. Um, that is probably already been sent to some of your employee homes. We did write a blog posting about that and I've linked it here. And I have some, an, a, a question that I'll answer later on today where you'll see where that ties in. A few things I wanted to note. I'm bringing back on-site seminars. So we here at Bolton decided, okay, let's see, let's bring back these seminars. Pre-COVID, I was doing a seminar about four times a year, and I would do it on different topics. And one of the most popular topics was benefit taxation. So it's all about IRS rules that interplay with your group, group benefits program you know, specifically under Section 125, which is anything from a premium-only plan to an FSA and anything run pre-tax, uh, like your HSA contributions as well, or your employee's HSA contribution. And uh, we're going to talk about domestic partners and basic life insurance and, and uh, voluntary life and, and how the IRS sets forth rules with regards to taxation there. So it'll be a seminar on site. You may have already received the invitation. We just want to know that there's limited space available. Pasadena is almost fully booked. So my message here is if you want to attend that, to register as soon as possible for that. And then Orange County has a few spots left. I think we have 10 spots left in Orange County, maybe a little bit less. So if you're in the Orange County area, you can choose to go on site to our Orange County office. And the April monthly webinar is scheduled for Thursday, April 20th. That's canceled. So I won't be doing a monthly webinar next month. So we'll send a reminder email a few days ahead of time so that you don't log in and, and then fine, you know, just silence. So we went over our updates. I don't see any questions so far. So I'm going to go over some questions I received the past month. The biggest one is what group health plan coverage will be affected when the public health emergency expires on May 11th? 
And I'll change that to say anticipated to expire on May 11th because the national emergency was also anticipated to expire on May 11th. And then, you know, today we fully expect that the national emergency will end immediately. But the public health emergency is anticipated to expire May 11th. So what can group health plans expect? If you're self-insured, so if you have self-insured medical coverage, only federal laws apply to your group health plan when you're self-insured. That is, uh, a lot of people consider that an advantage. So what that means is the requirement for group health plans to cover COVID-19 tests without cost sharing, both the over-the-counter and those lab tests, will end with the PHE, the Public Health Emergency Expiration. So although the COVID-19 vaccine has to be covered with no cost sharing, that's a preventive service that must be covered at 100%. So the COVID-19 vaccine, that's always going to be covered at 100% when administered by an in-network provider. If your employee or your plan participant goes out of network to get a vaccine, it will not be covered, uh, or at least not covered at 100%, starting May 12th. And if you're self-insured, you know that you have the ability to control that plan design. So if you want to maintain 100% coverage of a vaccine, if it's administered by an out-of-network provider, please contact your TPA to get the ball rolling on that because you have until May 12th to make that plan design change. You can make it, you can make the plan design change anytime which is the great part about self-insurance or part of the advantage. Uh, but if you want to make sure it's seamless with no gap in out-of-network coverage, you will want to contact your TPA. And additionally, for a self-insured group medical plan, there's no requirement to cover treatment, treatment of COVID-19 any differently than any other type of medical condition starting at the end of the PHE. So that is coming up. Let's move to a different category of plans. Let's say your plan is based in California, so it's written in in California, and you're fully insured. So for California-based, fully insured group health plans, it's different because California has state laws that protect the laws that are in place right now. So, for example, California Senate Bill 510 means that carriers have to continue to cover COVID-19 diagnostic and screening testing without cost sharing or any other utilization management requirement. That's how it was during the PHE. So that has to continue because of CASB 510. And then further, there's another Senate bill, 1473, that means that carriers must cover therapeutics as well, so the treatment part. At the end of six months after the PHE, after the end, after the public health emergency expires, so six months from May 11th, carriers only have to cover the cost share of these services in network. So for California-based fully insured group health plans, it's going to be business as usual for at least six months after the PHE. So that's important to know. I've already seen that California fully insured carriers like Cigna, uh, Blue Shield, they've already sent communication with regards to what is changing or not changing 
after May 11th. So you want to, you can look over your carrier specific communication. And if you haven't received it yet, you, you certainly will. There, we anticipate all of them will send out something with regards to this, even if it's just to make a note of it. And like I said, Blue Shield and Cigna already have. We know that for sure. Well, let's talk about the Affordable Care Act. It was absolutely, I call it the ACA season from January to, to March. And I thought this was a, a great question because I do get this question a lot. So it's not just one person asking me at one time of the year. I get this question all year round. So do the Affordable Care Act pay or play rules require employers to offer coverage to seasonal workers? And before I read the answer or go over the answer, I want to say we we sometimes forget that the way that we internally classify an employee is not always aligned with the way the law defines a class of employees. So if you call an employee a seasonal employee, you want to make the distinction or at least know, okay, is my internal classification the same as how the Department of Labor uh, defines a seasonal worker? Because it very well could be different. And that's where it could get confusing for the employee and for maybe other uh, prof HR professionals because you're reading the seasonal worker definition in your handbook and it doesn't always jive with the definitions that you see out there with the Department of Labor or the Affordable Care Act. So that's important to know. But do the does ACA require me as an employer to offer coverage to seasonal workers? So ALEs are applicable large employers. So if you're subject as an organization to pay or play, you must follow the ACA regulations or you face that risk of penalty. So the regulations do allow for an exception for seasonal workers, but here's where I'm talking about. Seasonal workers have a narrow definition under ACA regs. The seasonal basis of seasonal workers is defined by the Secretary of Labor. And I've given you the citation here for those that like to dig into it. I gave you the citation. But below is where you can really see, I would say, you know, we, we bottom line it for you, essentially. So in the 498H regs, so 4980H regs are the payer play rules. That's where it speaks to the penalties. The term seasonal employee means an employee who is hired into a position for which the customary annual employment is six months or less. So customary annual employment. Then it goes on in the preamble of the final regs, clarifies that customary means that by nature of the position, an employee typically works for a period of six months or less, and that period begins and ends at the same time each year, such as summer or winter. Perfect example you always hear of a seasonal worker is in the retail industry where you hire during the holiday season, and that is, uh, it starts at the same time each year, and it ends at the same time each year, and the annual employment is six months or less. Yeah, that's classic seasonal worker. So those workers, you don't, as the employer, you don't have to, you won't face penalty for not offering them medical coverage. But I've seen employers try to fit other classifications into a seasonal worker definition or question whether or not it fits. And you really need to go through that, that process of, of determining, it, do you hire and term at the same time each year? Can you fit it into that box? 
and is it left six months or less? Can you fit it into that box? And if you can, then you are uh, free of any type of risk of penalty. Someone asked about a temp. So we're talking about seasonal workers right now. So temporary workers are a completely different bucket of workers in the eyes of the Affordable Care Act. The ACA pay or play rules do not allow employers to make an exception for temporary workers. So if you have a group of temporary workers and you say internally you classify them as temporary, not eligible for benefits, in the eyes of the ACA, that is not a valid classification. You cannot say a temporary worker is not eligible for benefits just because you classified them that way internally. You know, the ACA is all about do they work 30 or more hours per week on average? Are they variable hours? Do you hire them with the intent that they will work more than 30 hours or not? Those are the questions to be asking. Interns, great question. Someone said, what about interns? Interns fall the, way, the same way that temps do. You can't classify interns on a blanket policy as interns not benefit eligible. The ACA doesn't give employers any type of exception to say, okay, we don't have to cover interns. They require, it's all about, do, did you hire them with the intent that they were going to work 30 hours or more? You can start with that question. If the answer is yes, we hired this intern or this temp to work 30 hours or more per week, then the Affordable Care Act says you would be at risk of penalty if you do not offer them coverage like you would any other full-time benefit-eligible workers. Okay, contract workers. I have a question about how about contracted workers. That is different. I'm not sure what you mean by contracted. Is it your employee? Are you paying their paycheck? You know, I would need more details with that. And I have a question. What about a substitute teacher? It can be a day, a week, or long-term subs or three months. Substitute teachers, generally, you have a hard time putting them in a seasonal bucket because you don't know when you need a sub. I mean, um, I actually was talking to a long-term sub the other day, so and, and, and we work with a lot of schools, so I understand that there are some that you can maybe predict that you would need a sub, uh, but others, it's really, you're not hiring and firing subs at the same time each year. So just by that, I would say you're going to have a hard time fitting them into a seasonal worker definition, which would make them exempt. So yes, even substitute teachers would count. In the eyes of the Affordable Care Act, and I think this is the best way to say it, when we look at it from an ACA lens, the ACA only gives an exception to seasonal workers that fit under the Secretary of Labor definition of seasonal worker. So intern, temps, substitute teachers, those, unless you can fit them in that seasonal worker box, they are not, you are, you as the employer are not uh, free of risk of penalty. You would face a risk of penalty if you did not offer qualifying and affordable coverage if they did average 30 or more hours per week. And if you hire someone with, if you hire someone and you can't determine if they're going to work 30 hours or more per week, we call that a variable hour employee. That's, that's how the ACA looks at that. Those are variable hour employees because you can't determine on the onset if they will work full-time hours, 30 hours or more. 
you can place a variable hour employee into a measurement period. You're allowed to do that. But when you hire someone other than a seasonal worker with the intent that they will work 30 hours or more per week, then the Affordable Care Act pay or play rules require an, an offer of coverage to be made to that individual. Otherwise, you risk penalty. The next question. I received a question about the outbreak period. So this is with regards to the joint notice extended deadline. When does the outbreak period end for purposes of the joint notice extended deadline related to COBRA? As of now, it's July 10th is when the outbreak period ends. So that's an important date, which is 60 days after the current end of the national emergency. Okay. Joint notice deadlines are tied to the national emergency, and the breaking news today was that the national emergency is expected to end immediately, today or tomorrow. That's not currently the law. So currently, we still anticipate May 11th, but now that you've heard it here, I think those dates will, will change based on everything we're hearing in the news that Biden won't veto the resolutions in the national emergency earlier. So these dates will very, very likely change. And when that happens, we will certainly keep you posted, especially with regards to, you know, COBRA beneficiaries in the outbreak period. That's an area that's always been a bit confusing for all of us because it's complex and they didn't write the regulations to be very clear and they've released a few different sets of agency facts on this to, to help employers be compliant so it's a it's often something that is is a tough area for employers to tackle so we will keep you updated on that but i can tell you that the agency facts were released yesterday so there's a whole set of facts with regards to the end of the public health emergency and also the um, national emergency so I linked the facts here in these slides, and then it gave an example of does the outbreak period apply to COBRA beneficiaries after May 11th? And they give you an example of someone electing COBRA. So it says the qualifying event occurred on May 12th. So that was right the day after the, the national emergency ends in this example. And the individual is eligible to elect COBRA under the plan and then it's provided a COBRA election notice on May 15th. Okay, everything looks good. What is the deadline for this individual to elect COBRA, keeping the outbreak period in mind? The answer is because the qualifying event occurred on May 12th, which is during the outbreak period, the extensions under the joint notice relief notices still apply. So the last day of that person's COBRA election period is 60 days after July 10th which is September 8th. This information is going to be really helpful for your COBRA administrator. And I have my fingers crossed that you all have a COBRA administrator so you don't have to keep track of the ins and outs of how this will work uh, because the, really getting into the weeds on this is, is something you, you hire your COBRA administrator to do, or I hope. If someone is currently on COBRA but didn't pay any premiums during the outbreak period, when do they need to make a payment? This was a question addressed in the agency facts that were released yesterday as well, and it's, a, it's what we expected. So with regards to paying COBRA premiums, 
if an individual signs up in uh, for COBRA, and in this example, the coverage started on October 15th of 2022, and it was retroactive back to October 1. Let's say this individual hasn't made any COBRA premium payments because it wasn't required under the joint notice deadline. So there's been no payments, but they've been using their COBRA coverage or they've been enrolled. And the facts go on to clarify that this individual has 45 days after July 10th, which is the end of the outbreak period, to make the initial COBRA premium payment. The payment has to include the monthly premiums all the way back to their original effective date. So October of 2022 through July of 2023. The premium payment then for August would also be due in this example as well. But the important part to note here is that I think there was confusion where if an employer, a former employee was allowed to enroll in COBRA without making any payment, the former employee may not realize that that money is coming due. And if they aren't able to come up with that COBRA premium payment to bring them current, the you as the employer, as the plan sponsor, you're allowed to terminate their coverage retroactively to the date that they first signed up. And I, I hope that I'm wrong about how many confused COBRA participants there might be. I really hope that I'm wrong. Okay, and lastly, I had a question. We'll finish up here in just a couple minutes. I had a question about the Medicaid redeterminations, which is, that's a big deal because it's the expiration of the continuous enrollment condition. So you may or may not know that because of the public health emergency, the state Medicaid um programs adopted or had an option to adopt provisions. And one of them was that they weren't issuing renewals and they called it continuous enrollment. So there was no renewal issue. There was no redetermination issue for three years. But that is ending starting April 1st. Medicaid is starting to issue renewals. And I wrote in my blog earlier uh, this year, I wrote that the federal Medicaid website calls the expiration of this continuous coverage requirement the single largest healthcare transition event since the first open enrollment period of the Affordable Care Act. That's a pretty strong, bold statement. I don't know if it, if it will be felt at your level as the employer running a group benefits program. I don't know the impact you'll feel, but certainly that's a bold statement for these individuals enrolled, enrolled currently in Medicaid. It means that they can expect some disruption in their coverage, which will push them into either a group sponsored plan or into the exchange marketplace. So it is, it is anticipated to be a very, very uh, significant transition event, but it's being rolled out, not all at once, but within 12 to 14 months. That's the good news. And during the agency facts, they answered a question, and the question they got was, what else can employers, particularly those that employ workers who are likely benefiting from Medicaid or CHIP coverage, so what can, else can employers do to assist their employees in maintaining health coverage. So if you have a large population of employees that you 
know or that you anticipate will be affected by the end of the continuous coverage requirement, then the agency did give a few paragraphs with regards to guidance on what you could do. Now, one of them is that uh, employers can encourage their employees who are enrolled in Medicaid or CHIP coverage to update their contact information with the state Medicaid or CHIP agency. And you might also encourage employees to respond promptly to any communication from the state. <clears throat> and um, this is, for me, this is a little scary, just as individuals, as, you know, humans, because we know that within those three years of continuous coverage, people have moved, and they may not have gotten a letter that that the that Medicaid sent out. And if they didn't get the letter, then they can't respond to the letter. And if they don't respond to the letter, they're going to lose coverage regardless of even if they weren't eligible. So it's a, a bit of a um, concerning event for, for those groups of individuals. And the agencies would love it if employers sort of wrapped their hands around it and got the communication out. They would absolutely love it. But it, 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 it's not your responsibility. So I thought I would just share that with you. All right, I just want to go back to, it looks like I have just a few questions I didn't answer. Somewhat, okay, for a contract worker, uh, the definition being used by one of our listeners is someone that terminated and is used as a consultant as needed with 1099. Uh, 1099 workers do not fall under employees, so you would have no risk of penalty for a 1099 worker. I hope that was clear. All right. It looks like I covered all the questions asked today and during the last month. So I'll leave you with some resources here. You can always subscribe to the Bolton blog if you haven't done so. That's where we release a lot of our updates. We do also do compliance alerts, but the blog would be the, the fastest way to get our communication. Of course, if you have benefit-related questions and you're Bolton Benefits clients, please at any time contact your team, contact me or our compliance team. And don't forget, as a Bolton client, you have access to Mineral. So it's a good resource for latest employment news. And Fisher Phillips, I, I left up the links to their CCPA Resource Center, their Cal OSHA COVID-19 rule, and their uh, changes fact sheet. I thought that might still be relevant for you, so I left those resources up there. Okay, well, that's all the questions I got for today. Thanks for being here with me, and I will not see you in April, or I, we will not get together in April, so don't forget that, but we'll also send you an email. And know that we will send a copy of the slides and the link to the recording to this session. We'll send that in the next day or two. Thanks, everyone. Have a great day.